I'd like to welcome you to the actually penultimate session, because I guess we will have a short roundup session uh, uh, after uh, with Michael Wood and Daniel Mendelssohn, um, but uh, to this session on comics. Now, there are very few times um, I've ever introduced somebody or anybody when, in fact, no introductions really were necessary. And were I to spend all the time introducing them and enumerating these artists' works, uh, we'd never get to hear them at all. Um, uh, I thought about that anyway because, I, in fact, I told Fromm I was going to finish my paper now, all the parts I left out. <laughs> <laughs> if that's okay, we should, be, you know, we should get to the artists at about 3.30 or so. <clears throat> um, individually uh, and quite briefly, um, Starting here on my near right is uh, Will Eisner. Uh, he is, in fact, universally acknowledged as one of the uh, great masters of the comic book art and credited by many as the inventor of the graphic novel. And in fact, last night at uh, dinner or on the way home from dinner, he actually described the moment in which he uh, conjured the term, made it up. Uh, he's a very quick thinker, actually. <laughs> and uh, to, to satisfy a publisher's need for a category that didn't exist. Um, his mass crime-fighting hero, The Spirit, launched in 1940 as a weekly comic book insert, was syndicated worldwide for a dozen years and influenced a generation of young cartoonists. Four volumes of, of uh, Will's graphic novels are Contract with God, this one here, Life Force, uh, Dropsy, uh, Dropsy Avenue, The Minor Miracles, um, uh, all kinds of graphic storytelling, understanding comics. I mean, there are all kinds of things. Uh, one of my favorites, actually. <clears throat> the Building by Will Eisner, uh, which will lead to some of the questions I have here. <laughs> and, um, uh, and all of these, you know, depicting in some ways about Jewish life and urban life um, uh, in, in the city. Um, he's also written two significant textbooks, uh, Comics and Sequential Art and Graphic Storytelling, which I have here. His name has been attached since the 1980s to the most prestigious trophies of comics, the Eisner Awards, which are awarded each year to dozens of comics artists, writers, colorists, and creators. And in 1995, he was honored with the Milton Caniff Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, he really uh, is one of the, the progenitors of um, the graphic novel, the comics, as in comics, as in commixture of image and narrative. Uh, next uh, on this... Uh, strip of comics, <laughs> comic strip, <laughs> is Jules Pfeiffer, uh, also, I mean, uh, the cartoonist, playwright, novelist, and essayist, and, uh, and I have to say, actually, um, the first uh, cartoonist I read, um, last night Ben Katcher pointed out that as he read his father's uh, Yiddish newspapers, he couldn't make out any of the writing, but his eyes always gravitated to the small graphics, even the little bug uh, on, the, uh, on the seal, and as did my eyes growing up uh, to Jules Pfeiffer's works uh, in my parents' newspapers, um, syndicated uh, all over the world. Um, his, he created the comic strip Clifford uh, and contributed political cartoons to the Village Voice and the comic strip Pfeiffer, which ran for 40 years. He published his first collection of comic strips, Sick, 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 in 1958. A few of his plays and numerous other works are, and this is just a handful uh, of what uh, many, many more works, uh, Passionella and Other Stories from 1959, The Explainers in 19, from 1961, which features many of his comic strip characters, 
The Great Comic Book Heroes from 1965, Pfeiffer on Civil Rights, 1967, Little Murders, 1968, Carnal Knowledge, 1971, Knock Knock, 1976, Jules Pfeiffer's America from Eisenhower to Reagan, 1982. In addition to the 1961 Obie Award and a 1969 Outer Critics Circle Award for Little Murders, a 1969 Outer Critics Circle <clears throat> Award for the White House Murder Case, a 1970 Newspaper Guild Page One Award, a 1981 Special George Pope Memorial Award, and a Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartooning in 1986. It's just a, a few of the awards. Uh, again, the, there are eight more pages of them. I can't even you know, begin here. Um, currently, uh, Mr. Pfeiffer continues his nationally syndicated weekly cartoon and monthly op-ed oh, cartoon. Boy, you don't. <laughs> he's, he's quit. So we get. I quit. Uh huh. <laughs> Nothing was happening. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to say. <laughs> and has recently been publishing a series of children's books, The Man in the Ceiling, A Barrel of Laughs at the Vale of Tears. Meanwhile, and I Lost My Bear. And uh, uh, finally, uh, my friend Art Spiegelman, um, uh, truly uh, a gigantic uh, influence on a whole generation of our, of our uh, students' understanding of the Holocaust and, again, how it gets passed down to them. Um, best known uh, among people outside the know for Mouse, a survivor's tale, My Father Bleeds History, um, and Mouse Two. In fact, these were to be a single volume, as I understood it uh, quite a while ago. Uh, uh, the publishers actually, I think, asked for a, a break just so they could get some part out sooner than later. Um, but the second volume won a special Pulitzer Prize in 1992, and both have been now translated into some 20 languages. Um, he was well known, in fact, before Mouse uh, as the co-founder and uh, editor of um, the avant-garde uh, Raw comics, the Raw magazine in 1980. <clears throat> um, and I uh, knew his work well before that. Pieces were coming out uh, uh, well before that, so pieces of Mouse, in fact. Um, uh, he's also <clears throat> um, had a profound influence, and he's been a great chronicler of the development of graphic arts. His other works include... The Complete Mr. Infinity from 1970, The Vicar Viper of Vice, Villainy, and Vickedness, 1972, Zip-A-Tune and More Melodies, 1972, Ace Hole, Midget Detective, 1974, Language of Comics, 1974, Work and Turn, 1979, Every Day Has Its Own Dog, Has Its Dog, 1979, Two-Fisted Painters, Action Adventure, Raw, a collection in 1990, and I think there's been another Raw collection since. Um, at Raw 2, Required Reading for the Post-Literate, 1991. Raw 3, High Culture for Lowbrows, 1991. History of Comics, 1996. And my children's favorite, Open Me, I'm a Dog, <clears throat> uh, for which they know art, actually. Um, comics, Essays, and Scraps from Mouse to Now, 1980, 1998. The Wild Party, 1999. And uh, now we've also seen uh, a new collaboration uh, here. Uh, did I see parts of this in The New Yorker, actually? Uh, Jack Cool and Plastic Man, uh, just published now uh, with Chip Kidd. Um, currently, Art is uh, cover artist, contributor, and consulting editor to The New Yorker. Um, now, with that, I'm going to begin all the paper bits I didn't get to the first time. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to begin just um, very briefly with uh, a few words um, Art sent me years ago that he'd written uh, as a quick thumbnail of the comics. Throughout most... This is, these are Art's words. Throughout most of its 150-year-old history, the comic strip has been the hunchbacked, half-witted, bastard-dwarf stepchild of the graphic arts. <laughs> it's only very recently that the medium has begun to find some legitimacy in bookstores under its new alias, the graphic novel. Thank you. Well, <laughs> um, 
so here we have a uh, kind of a um, Jewish iconographers on the one sa- on the one hand, all iconoclasts on the other, you know, together. Um, Jewish graphic uh, novelists on the one hand, but regarded in their fields really as first as graphic novelists. And I guess I would like to throw out um, uh, the, the question, kind of the generic question. Um, uh, so what is so Jewish, if anything, about the graphic novel? Uh, and do you, do you actually draw these lines that uh, everybody's been working on? Is there a hyphen between, uh, between your sides as uh, Jews and as graphic novelists? Who answers that? I want, to, I want to make a denial here first <laughs> before we start. I did not start out to be a Jewish American artist or writer. As a matter of fact, I tried to hide it. I created a character who had a short nose and, a, and an Irish name, lived in an Irish neighborhood, had an Irish kick back, kick, um, sidekick, and only about several years later, some kid in my shop unmasked me and denounced me for the world, he said, this guy's a spirit was really a Jew. <laughs> it was Pfeiffer. <laughs> so, I, so he uncloseted me. I just wanted to make that statement before we begin anything. <laughs> yeah, well, let me add uh, what was so interesting in early comic books with the uh, superheroes or the not-so-super-mass heroes. Uh, often done by Jewish cartoonists and written by Jewish writers, um, is that the, the secret identity, when they weren't, didn't have their leotards on, their names were Wesley and Bruce and Benny. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 uh, I mean, these names, Bruce and Kevin, of course, became Jewish for the next generation, as we, <laughs> as we all know. But Sorry, Will. <laughs> this is what happened I'll when I worked there. I'll never forgive you for that. <laughs> Go ahead. You answer. What, what is it? And Art, you too? You, well, and, uh, I think um, I had to come out of the closet in order to do mouths as mm-hmm. a Jew. But when I was younger, I found out that Al Cap's name was actually Kaplan. Mm-hmm. And so when I was about 12 years old, I tried to sign my name Art Spegg. <laughs> <laughs> just didn't take it. Didn't but you still, right, do an, but you still do abbreviate your name, speak, I know. Just to uh, it's speak. too long right. compositionally right. sometimes, yeah. Um, too long compositionally, Well, you can't, there's not enough room to put it in. That, <laughs> at this point, it's in context. That's just not going to work here. But Mark. I had another signature, <laughs> which was Skeeter Grant also. And I really <laughs> wanted to. Half the things on that list that you yeah. read, of things I did when I was younger, were signed by Skeeter Grant, Mm-hmm. Um, and it was when doing mouse where it just became inevitable that it was so inextricably wound up with the subject matter, uh, whatever that identity I was carrying with me, that it all uh, came forth. But the comics that made me want to be cartoons were all done by Jews, you know, mm-hmm. so that uh, when I was a kid, I saw these early mad comics, and there were words like for Schlugener and Pochebia in it, you know, and... Uh, it was a clue that this was coming from the same neighborhood that I'd grown up in. So. <laughs> There's that, that piece in Breakdowns uh, very early on uh, where you've got the little finger puppets uh, all being accused here of uh, Jew. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, the only thing I could figure out about being a Jew is it probably wasn't a good idea. They almost killed my parents for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, there's another thing to think of in terms of not just comics, perhaps least of all comics, but all of the popular arts at the time. I mean, Arthur Miller, who just yesterday or the day before wrote a piece in the Times on his novel Focus, which has just become a film, and about 
uh, his leading character who puts on a pair of glasses and begins to look Jewish, and, and, and Miller writes that he did this after his first play because the problem of anti-Semitism nobody was dealing with and uh, in literature, and, uh, and this was his way of going about it. But a couple of years later, he writes Death of a Salesman with a generic name like Willie Loman, uh, and the attack Mary McCarthy gave it some years later, I think in Partisan Review, or at the time, was this is clearly a Jewish family and nobody will admit they're Jews, which was quite common on the stage. You had a whole, whole generation of Jewish playwrights, some of them, you know, some of them writing dramas, some of them writing comedies, uh, and some of the humor was clearly, and some of the, the uh, ways of delivering a line were clearly based on the neighborhood. But none of them had those names. I mean, they're, they're certainly not none of the main characters, some of the secondary characters, perhaps. Uh, the same thing was true in the movies, that, uh, that Jews were the schleppers and, uh, in films. And uh, never the leading roles, because if they played a leading role, they were Italians. Edward <laughs> G. Robinson was Little Caesar. They were gangsters. He was Rico. Uh, the first Jew who was allowed, allowed to be openly a Jew and dominant in films was John Garfield. And what a relief to a bunch of us in our neighborhood, you know, who coming up in high school to have this very attractive, uh, nervy, insolent character who talked back uh, as we were taught not to, because uh, you were not supposed to talk back. You'd get into trouble. So, I mean, it happened across the board. It was in comics. It was in every area of the culture. And only as things changed with the television age and just about... All these comics were doing their Jewish lines and shtick, and, and, and uh, the, the Gentiles were imitating them. Only then could the humor and the, and the whole approach come out of the closet. Until then, it was discreet, and you were, you were given other names. What's interesting to me specifically about this is that it's the comic book that's Jewish, not the comic strip. The comic strip mm -hmm. has other ethnic uh, uh, workers that Very were dominant. So that uh, there were Jews. There was uh, Harry Hirschfeld, there well, was Rube Goldberg, there was Milk yeah, Gross. Milk Gross, yeah. but, um, but the but innovators were not. But the you know, real first generation... No, no, they, they were. They were innovators. Well, what do you know about this period? <laughs> <laughs> Only what you guys tell me. You're all the historians. I love to read histories about that era because it reminds me of what, what I've forgotten. Well, <laughs> I think it's no, in complications think, of the Irish where you get... Well, let me ask you. No, they were innovators. Uh, as a matter of fact, they were because they represented a, a cultural change. They, they represented the immigrants. Um, even, even Crazy Cat, Harriman, his language had a Jewish innovation to it. Yeah, he's been claimed as black, though, so... Well, no, he wasn't. Conference. He wasn't. He was a Creole. 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 <laughs> he wasn't black. Um, he only wore his hat for... The only reason he, everybody claimed that he was black because he wore his hat to keep, prevent anybody from seeing he had a kinky hair. It's not necessarily so. When I first, my first job was at the New York American right after high school, and I discovered that all the cartoonists there were wearing hats while, while they worked. They, uh, the writers and the cartoonists were wearing newspaper and were wearing hats. It was, it was kind of a badge. As a matter of fact, first publicity photograph I have of myself, I'm wearing a hat. <laughs> I thought, well, that's going to wait. But I think... Uh, perhaps I should insert here something about the, the, or, the origin way back in the prim, primordial days of the formation of the comic book, as we know the comic book, which is really a, a product that grew out of the ashes of the pulp magazines that were dying at the time. 
comic book originated, as we, we call it a comic book, it was a mag, comic magazine at the time, originated when some, newspaper, when some printing company on the East Coast here put together a series of daily strips, collected them into, into books, into a magazine, and they became almost like complete stories, a magazine called yeah, Famous Funnies. Yeah, they were, they were, the, daily, there was, uh, the daily strips, there were about 60 of them at that time, about 20% of them were continuity strips, which, like Dick Tracy, which completed an episode every six weeks. Every six weeks, Dick Tracy would complete a, an adventure and go on to another one. Consequently, if you took those daily strips and stacked them up together, you would have roughly a complete story idea. And that was, uh, it was only a, a, a desire to uh, increase the print run uh, in the printing plant that really precipitated the use of that. But anyway, it started an industry at the time. Uh, but the artists who came into that field, all the fellows that I was hiring at the time, my shop was the only shop producing material at that time, came from other fields. They came from the, uh, uh, from the murals. Um, Alex Bloom was, was a muralist. There was one fellow who was a, a wood engraver. Uh, a number of, uh, no, there was no origin, no beginnings to it. What we did was change their names. Immediately they came into the shop, we would change their name. Jack Jacob Kurtzberg came in. I immediately assigned him a name called Jack Curtis, which he changed later on to, to Kirby. But the, nobody in the field then, at that time, none of the Jewish boys or any, even some of the boys with long Polish names would allow themselves to be called by their real name because they felt that this was kind of show business. So the whole movement of Jewish artists into the field, comic artists in the field, was uh, permeated by this desire to, to change their name or to alter their identities. It's, it's classic because for centuries Jews have been trying to assimilate by either getting a nose job or changing their name. That's the only, only uh, way of, of becoming integrated into the society. So the, the early comics, the comic books, contained names uh, that were, uh, that were either variation, uh, variations of a, of a big name like Bob Powell, who was not Jewish, his name was Stanislaus Pawlowski, changed it to Bob Powell. Uh, the, uh, um, uh, the, a whole series of uh, Stan Lee was Stanley Lieber. Uh, Bob Kane, who I went to school with, was Bob Kahn. When I knew him, Robert Kahn changed it to Bob Kane. Uh, Gil Kane was another name that was very prominent in the comic book era. So we, we um, actually, we tried to survive by changing our names. The only one that wouldn't change his name that came in my shop was a kid named Pfeiffer. I don't know whatever became of him. <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, you also, because you wrote, in, you were a one-man industry, Will would write and draw endless features and create different names for himself. That's right. <laughs> so Willis Renzi, which is Eisner. Backwards. <laughs> well, almost backwards. And uh, what were some of the others? Well, it was a great name I had. Uh, when we started, we needed to have a staff. My partner, Iger, went out trying to get business. And he called back one day and he said, uh, they want to know how, how large a staff we have. I said, well, we had a little office that was able to contain a drawing board and a desk, and that's all. It was in a, in a small building on 40th Street, uh, which catered to bookies. Uh, they <laughs> little, pay five dollars a month for the rent. Anyway, I sitting there and I said, "Tell them we got five artists." 
at five fingers. He came back and he said, we can't afford to hire that. I said, we'll, I will draw in five different styles. And so I, I took on five wonderful names. W. Morgan Thomas, which is wonderful. <laughs> Willis R. Renzi, my name backwards. And then the prime name, which I thought would ensure me success for the rest of my life, Spencer Steele. Now, somebody with a name like Spencer Steele can't possibly fail. You've got, got to be successful. So we, we went on that way. It was, it was what we kept doing all the time, changing names. Another thing that should be said about those early comic books uh, um, is that most, uh, virtually none of the artists going into the business, Jack Kirby or any of them, thought of this as their profession. This was, a tra this was going to be their transition. Uh, they were either going to go in where the big boys were going, which was to doing syndicated daily and Sunday comic strips, or even more of them, the ones who drew more seriously or more illustratively, hoped to get illustration jobs in the Saturday Evening Post or Collier's, and this was their... You know, where they made a couple of bucks and made their way through the Depression and trained themselves. So That's nobody right. thought of this as a real field. Right. Nobody in my shop. At that point, the comic book business was sort of an extension of the garment industry. <laughs> you, know? it was, uh, you did it because you could rather than because you aspired to it. Um, because, what I was starting to say you before about like the comic you. you just sounded like catcher. What, what I was going to say about the comic strips is they were either done by Americans making fun of immigrants or by immigrants, the early comic strips. Um, and as such, it always dealt with and was made by outsiders. But by the time the comic book itself got invented, what Will was talking about before, comic strips were a big business. It was something to aspire to because there was a lot of money to be made. And Not for the guys who were producing it. No. In the, the guys the who were producing were, were, were cutting... Well, no, the syndicated strips, but not the comic oh, the books. Syndicate. Oh, well, that's what I'm saying. No, the, the syndicates were the aristocracy. Were, this was yeah, the upper. Exactly. The comic strips were the aristocracy, and the, uh, the urban peasants were making comic books, basically. Yeah. Well, it was the Jews. only place they could get jobs. <laughs> exactly. People have always asked me why uh, I constantly, particularly in Europe, for some reason or other, were fascinated with why there are so many Jews in the comic, early comic book comic magazine days. And one of the reasons was it's the only place they could, these guys could go. The daily, the daily strips, were, aside from the three prominent Jewish names, uh, were no place to, you had no place to go there. This was an open field. Even the publishers, who were a, a motley lot, uh, were, were fascinating. The, the guy that created DC Comics, or started DC Comics, was a, was a, a Jewish mafiosi from uh, somewhere from Cleveland who was under indictment. That was how... DC Comics got started. He was on indictment for doing what, what they called in those days dirty books. He was doing girly books at that time. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the two guys who met in jail, who, who, who was in it? Uh, Charlton Comics, there were two publishers who met in, they were in prison. <laughs> One guy was in prison for having stolen mu um, music songs. That is, he was reprinting this song without bothering to pay the copyright owners any fees. The other fellow had been in there for for um, some sort of fraud of some kind, and they decided they were going to go into publishing after they got out. It turned out that they were both released at the same time, and so they started a comic book business called Charlton Comics, which is how Charlton Comics got started. But the, uh, by and large, the, uh, the whole field was a, a seething, seamy kind of business. It, uh, um, I was, when I discussed this with Chabon, uh, when he did uh, 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 um, Cavalier and Clay, 
he picked up a lot of that by having the two main publishers there form a novelty mag, uh, product guys. But these are guys who came out of nowhere. They, it was a field that was almost like uh, uh, the junk business mm -hmm. in, uh, in, the, uh, in the days of the steel, early steel business. In that sense, it kind of echoes what uh, Hollywood was at its beginnings. We're very, not any, very similar. Uh, very belief similar. That it would be an art form. Well, it was the only place to go. Nobody talked about I talked about it once as an art, as an art form in an interview, and I came back to New York, and they, they told me the other artist said I was being uppity, so I shut up about it. I never said any word about it for 10 years after that. I, I was ashamed to say it. Uh, in an interview with Milton Kniff in, in the series I did uh, of interviews, uh, Shop Talk, he sat with me and I said, Milt, I said, you know, I want to tell you that I'm, I'm a fan. I regard you as having done great art. You were great literature. Oh, he says, nonsense. He says, I'm a, he says, I'm a, uh, I'm a, I'm a sell, I sell, I sell, I sell newspapers. I'm a, mm -hmm. I, yeah, there was something unmanly about being called an artist uh, because these were the guys, it was, Kniff was that way. Uh, Walt Kelly was very much that way. You called them artists. And their blood boiled because uh, they wanted to be, I mean, their ambition was not to be taken seriously as artists. They wanted to be newspaper men with the hats on the head and the cigarette behind here and the glasses of whiskey. They were, they were the boys, and uh, that was the image. And um, they didn't like the term artist. No, as a matter of fact, uh, I've told this anecdote before. I was, uh, shortly after I was invited to join the National Cartoon Society, I found myself there at their meetings, very much in awe. Here, here I was in the, I was in the uh, uh, Hall of the Mountain Kings. It was Alex Raymond, there's Milton Kniff, and there one evening was sitting uh, uh, Rube Goldberg, and so I went over and talked with him, and he asked me what I did, and I told him, and I told, and I went into this long bit about how I felt that this was a literary slash art form, and that I was planning, hoping to do some more serious work. He sat there. He was quite on in years at that time. He had a cane. He banged his cane. He said to me, bullshit, boy. He said, this is, we're just vaudevillians. And don't you forget that. Well, that was what the, well, all of them thought. He, he thought he was a vaudevillian. And that, we, that was what we intended. I mean, was your work distinguished from theirs by uh, and then this, this undercurrent of uh, critique and kind of... Uh, well, at that time, I was still doing a newspaper. I was still stealing the spirit, mm -hmm. which I went to largely because it was the only opportunity mm -hmm. I had for getting out of what I call mm -hmm. the comic book ghetto. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to continue writing uh, for 10-year-old Cretans from Kansas City, mm -hmm. which we used to refer to. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, uh, it, um, it was an opportunity to write to adults, which is the first time I had to do what I really felt I wanted to do. I mean, aside from taking on multiple identities to support yourself, and what other things did you do early on with the jewels and art when you, when you began? How did you support yourselves? Uh, what kinds of other art were you making? Art? I never made a living. <laughs> I, um, basically, incidentally, one thing you were supposed to announce is opposed to all these bogus books that showed up in one biographical source, mm -hmm. they're all untrue, it's just a bad day. Mm -hmm. uh, all those books, that were, but what you're supposed to say is, I suffer from smoking, and it happens to me when I'm in public, I need to mm -hmm. smoke, so I apologize in advance, I can make rationales about how the word fumetti means puff of smoke, and it's the word for comics in Italian, um, <laughs> I can find other excuses, but it just becomes part of uh, what I need to be able to do to talk and things at the same time. Um, the only job I ever had 
Put that out. <laughs> this is the man who took a cigarette out of my mouth at my wedding. Uh, um, I never thought of you as suicidal. I just realized. Um, the only job I ever had was one I got by accident, and it lasted for 20 years, uh, working for a bubblegum company. Uh, what happened was when I was a kid, these mad cartoonists who made me want to uh, be a cartoonist had dispersed and were working in various places. One of them, Jack Davis, was doing the backs of baseball cards. I had no interest in the front of baseball cards, but I loved the little spot drawings on the back because they were by one of these uh, um, sanctified cartoons who had come through this very special place, Mad, which had kind of warped my life in an important way. <laughs> so I think there's nothing lower than a bubblegum company. I'll get in touch and see if they care about holding on to the artwork or whether I could get some to look at. Somehow I got through to the editor there who invited me to come by and it turned out we had a shared passion, him in his uh, 40s, me in my mid-teens, in old comic strips. And he was happy to find somebody who knew as much about it as he did somehow. So he kept me on file. And when he figured out that I'd be graduating from high school, invited me to work at this bubblegum company. And that was about a 20-year career where I did everything from right, uh, the bazooka fortunes. But this was the 60s, so I wrote them based on casting the I Ching. Um, and, making up things like wacky packages and garbage pail kids feeding back uh, the parodic lessons of mad as stickers uh, for kids. And basically, Bazooka Tops Bubblegum were my Medici's while I, uh, <laughs> while I did the work I cared about, which was working for alternative uh, newspapers and uh, uh, working on mouse and other comic strips. So from 1966 to 86, I had a steady paycheck even when I was just traveling around in a van around the country for a year, uh, they'd give me small assignments and send checks to post office boxes wherever I intended to be next. So that was the only time I ever worked for a living. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jules, did you ever regard yourself as a newspaper man in the sense that... Uh, uh, well, no? no, I think that day was mostly over by that time. In any case, uh, by the time I started out professionally, my ambitions had changed. Uh, that that uh, when... I started working for Will when I was 16. I was the first job I had. The second, actually. The first one was, I remember S. Bart Singers, Sam Singer, <laughs> a thief who <laughs> published comic books. And, um, and uh, I worked for him for a few weeks until he tried to get me to steal money from other cartoonists uh, and buy flowers for his girlfriend with him. And then I left. Um, but it's a colorful field. And, um, but Eisner was as he remains my hero. And I had collected everything and studied him. I mean, it was my college uh, of cartooning at the age of 12, 13, 14. And, and I collected some samples one day, looked them up in the phone book, and went down to his office. And it was, a peculiar, it was at 37 Wall Street. And, uh, and the outer office, where the receptionist usually sits, was where Will sat with his drawing table, a, little, a, a, a drawing table and a desk, and his assistants, who were helping him on the spirit, were inside with all the light and all the space and eye ceiling. He was in his dark room, and he received me warmly, and he looked at my work, and he told me I was talentless. Uh, and, I mean, it was just awful stuff, he said. And I, feeling mortified, humiliated, and suspecting he was true, uh, started talking. What else could I talk about? I couldn't retreat on, on this level. I started talking about him. And I knew more about his work than anybody. I had this whole dossier on him. I knew everything. 
And while the men inside the office after that, (laughs) well, the men inside who worked for him professionally and were quite adept at what they did, his lettering man, Sam Brosen, his uh, uh, a penciler, uh, John Spranger, all were kind of aloof and diffident about who who they were working for. And one of them, John Spranger, actually told me, "Well, this stuff is old-fashioned. That's the spirit." And and uh, (laughs) you know, it wasn't. And which I thought was incredible. So as I talked and talked and talked, it became clear to Will he couldn't let me go. So my first job was as a groupie. And, <laughs> and only then, slowly, did, did I break in and begin to qualify to put in blacks. You know, a little area of the spirit world was full of blacks. The spirit was this world full of uh, um, dark alleys and, and, and everything, blotches of black hair and blotches of black there. And when Will wanted a black, he put an X. And I would try to fill in that X and screw that up. And occasionally he let me do a, st- a, a staircase, and I'd screw that. I mean, it was, I was, I was, he was right. I was quite awful at what I wanted to do, which was comic books. And only after I got out of the Army some few, few years later and realized that this was not what I wanted to do any longer. What I wanted to do was overthrow the government, and that, that, that required a different kind of approach, much more in line with the sort of drawing I did do. <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, and so while I was overthrowing the government, I did, like many artists who overthrow the government, except grants. Uh, <laughs> uh, called unemployment insurance. And, and, uh, and I get a job for six months at a slide house, slide presentations, doing annual reports of one kind or another. I arranged to get myself fired after six months. Uh, then collect an unemployment check while I did my own work, which I would then take around and be told I was talentless. And so this went on for some years until the Village Voice. So I had those jobs for a while. Mm-hmm. Not very interesting. One but thing I fun. want to point out about all three of us, uh, and it's kind of interesting, is that uh, I think, did you use it in the introduction or was it at lunch where you said something about iconoclasts and iconograph? Iconographers were simultaneously iconoclasts. Because each of, each of the people here, including I myself, had to sort of refigure out what comics were so it could include them. And it's not true of every cartoonist or even mm-hmm. every important cartoonist. But uh, Will didn't feel he belonged in comic strips and therefore had to invent a way to like shoehorn himself into them by borrowing from a, a comic book language and a comic book format and selling it to newspapers so he could move up the hierarchical ladder toward comic strips while still doing the comic books he was interested in. Jules had to reinvent uh, what a comic strip was in, in a very radical way. Um, I think the legacy now includes things like Doonesbury and beyond, but at, at that time, uh, the literary skills that Jules was bringing to comics didn't have a logical place to sit. And, um, and, and as a result, bringing in certain approaches that had more to do with blackout comedy, theater, uh, uh, internal monologues, and finding a way to turn those into comics involved totally rethinking what a comic strip could be uh, in order to find a, a place where he could express himself. Um, and in some way, that's true for me as well. There wasn't an obvious place to do what I needed to do. There was a situation that was very receptive because I was lucky enough uh, to be born at a time where I could be part of a generation making comics that had no 
where the cartoons had no hope of making money, no interest in making money. They were just working for underground newspapers because they liked making comics. And it was a time where there was a printing revolution that allowed for short-run offset presses that could make underground newspapers uh, for relatively small uh, groups of people who might be interested. And that allowed for a kind of um, work that didn't require that it be involved in selling a newspaper and making a joke or making escapist entertainments and where one could define what that form would be as one went along. And for me, it was a few years before I found my own voice as a cartoonist uh, and was able to take advantage of that. And then um, at a certain point decided that I wanted to make something very, very long. Um, and that was sort of a, a, a phantom holy grail at the time. And uh, talking with various people, the words graphic novel were already sort of beginning to filter out and I didn't like the phrase very much, my apologies for it, but it seemed like, because it did seem like a, a, a misguided bid for respectability. Since graphics are respectable and novels are respectable, you get double respectability doing comics if you call them graphic novels. But the idea of doing a comic so long that you'd have to put a bookmark in it, and the idea of doing something that would require rereading were ideas that were very important to me. Did you have to get by Will's earlier work? I mean, well, there was a, I did some really terrible uh, stuff that involved um, uh, a character called the Viper. There was uh, right after I discovered uh, Will's work in some reprint collection that owed all too much to that. And there was a period where I kept doing stuff that had no thought, no speech balloons above it, little mm -hmm. blocks of type with repeated pictures for several mm -hmm. panels. You know, that in order to find one, one, one has to like pass through various other uh, lenses before one finds one's own. Something should be said here. I'd like to say something about you, Art. Art Spiegelman represents to me a very important element or phase in the evolution of this literary art form, which I have always been spending my mind talking about, my life talking about. 1970, I think it was 1970, there was a, a conference or a, co a comic a convention in New York City run by a fellow named Phil Sewing, who began a whole series of comic conventions. <clears throat> I was at that time, I was a suit. I was a CEO of a publishing company up in, uh, up in Connecticut, and I got a call from Phil Sewing asking me to come down and attend the comics convention. Matter of fact, my secretary walked in, nice gray-haired lady from New England, and she said to me, there's a man on the phone, he says he'd like to talk to these he says he's he's got a, a comics convention. She said she looked at me. She said, "Mr. Ido, are you were you ever a cartoonist?" <laughs> I looked around to be sure there was no one else in the room, and I admitted, "Yes, it was." Well, what what is very important here is that Jules was part of that whole scene down there. I remember coming down and meeting. Uh, Speaking well, art, art was part. I'm sorry. Yeah. Jules. I'm Jules. Oh, geez, you look alike. <laughs> you look alike. <laughs> Without the cigarette, I couldn't tell. <laughs> um, they were um, they were all gathered in this little place now. There was art. art there was Bob Crumb. There was uh, Spain uh, Rodriguez. Uh, there was a couple of other guys, but they were all very funny guys. They all had long hair. And they had this very funny look, and there was a faint smell of Murad cigarettes, and they laughed at the wrong time. <laughs> any rate, uh, but I, would, I was really astounded by what they were doing. They, a, a revolution was occurring there. And I, it was because of that that when I got back to New England uh, that weekend, fortunately, I, somebody had offered to buy 
my stock in the company, and I sold it and went back to doing this because I realized that this was a big change. He was part of a revolution. For the first time, uh, comics were being used. This meeting was being used as a true literary form to address social problems. Up until that time, comics were used essentially as an entertainment. Uh, even, even the work of Harvey Kurtzman, which was much more sophisticated than anything that had come along at that time, was essentially entertainment. There were pulp magazine stories done better than others. But these guys were, were writing, were addressing social problems. You were talking about drugs and sex and so forth and so forth. So I, I, uh, I owe art and that whole group my uh, re-entrance into the field uh, of uh, creating, quote, the hateful graphic novels. And by the way, as far as graphic novel being a misnomer, so is comics a misnomer. We've been living with the word comics. It's, uh, it's a very, uh, very difficult thing to get rid of a title once it's slammed onto That's it. why Fumetti is such a good word. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a very good word. Um, you know, the thing is, as far as Jews and comics go, though, I don't think that that's um, any longer uh, a specific and special case. There mm -hmm. seems to be a few Jews wandering around mm -hmm. this world of alternative comics and whatever, but a number of other ethnic no, types as well. Mm -hmm. it, but the Jewishness has to do very specifically with that garment industry moment mm -hmm. and, and the ripples after. Now, I can't remember which cartoonist it is that said this, but he said he had changed his name so, to something Jewish so he could get work in... Well, Neil Adams. Neil used, Adams. Neil Adams right. used to walk around swearing that his name was something else before, because he was the only one in the industry that whose name was truly Neil Adams was not Jewish. <laughs> um, so at this point, I don't know that there's anything very specifically sure. Jewish about comic books, except in its DNA. But in, the, in their origins, was there some sense in which the you know they were. The Jew was regarded in the 20s as kind of a, the so-called marginal man, you know, it's kind of uh, able to make mainstream culture you know, see itself, you know, from a different perspective, a different place. I think just because historically, the yeah. way it developed, it was these outsiders getting involved in American culture through mm -hmm. this um, um, delivery entrance. But unlike the movie, the movie industry, which kind of ended up ratifying or even creating an idea of America, um, uh, uh, this, the, the Mickey Rooney characters, you know, the, of the 30s, which didn't even exist except in the minds of immigrants who came and wanted mm -hmm. to make something that looked American in their minds, white picket fences and, and things. Um, unlike uh, this kind of ratification of the idea of America, the, it seems like the, the comics artists or graphic novelists always had as part of their uh, built-in mandate a, a critique uh, to go against the grain somehow. Or am I just reading too much into it? I mean, Jules's early works were always uh, socially critical, weren't they? I mean, and at what point did they get assimilated by the newspaper? In other words, at what point did you become oh, respectable? I hope, well, I hope never. It, it, yeah. it's, uh, um, I always found censorship a form of validation, so I never objected to it. The most Jewish thing of all was, of course, the creation of the superhero. Um, and I've written about it, and other people have commented on it, but the, that, that Siegel... Uh, that, that, um, but it was assimilated Jewish boys who created that Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster growing up in the suburbs of Cleveland in the 1930s uh, during the rise of anti-Semitism in Germany, during the rise of domestic anti-Semitism and Father Coughlin on the radio and uh, Christian front groups and Bund groups uh, and going to 
high school where there are these nerdy, bespectacled, um, pimply Jewish boys never getting the girls. And who gets these girls but these big, bustled jocks with blonde hair, these Aryan types. And, of course, the fantasy is that if these girls could only see underneath this eyeglass, pimply, nerdy, you know, w once I took my clothes off, they'd see my powerful <laughs> muscles, which were pipe stems, of course. But so, you know, and so they, this was the, I mean, the alien concept, that it wasn't really the planet Krypton, as I wrote, that, that uh, Superman came from. It was the planet Minsk. Uh, <laughs> that this was, it was the integration fantasy, just as, uh, you know, Hollywood producers invented Robert Redford, you know, and, and uh, it's uh, that... Um, that this notion, I mean, my, when I was a kid growing up in the East Bronx and going to those movies on Saturday, which were then in black and white, and seeing this world of Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, I mean, that was f far more real and far more desirable than any world I lived in, and it was what I aspired to, if it wasn't George and Ira in a penthouse on Riverside Drive uh, with Fred and Ginger dancing on the piano. That wasn't bad either. <laughs> And then the fifties come, and the show of shows, and the and the TV began to also to be a place where, I, I mean, there was some implied critique, uh, I mean, harsh critique of what. Uh, well, Sid Caesar primarily. Uh, I mean, the Sid Caesar show, and we all know the the incredible talent that wrote for that, and Caesar himself was extraordinary, and um, and his sidekicks, Howie Morris, and particularly Carl Reiner. I mean, these guys just exploded into what clearly was. Uh, without disguised Jewish humor and uh, and Jewish accents and Jewish delivery, and it was truly liberating for the brief period of time that it ran, you know no more than four or five years and then it was all gone. But it was remarkable. Was there any connection between that and then your rise? For some reason, in my mind, growing up in the early fifties, I've, I've pegged that that kind of uh, no because these guys, unless it was clearly subversive, were never political. Uh, they never talked about race. They never talked about the Cold War. Um, the people I was identifying with, who, I mean, the, the, uh, well, the only one to identify with who came along before me was Mort Saul, a year or two earlier, starting out in San Francisco. And it was a revelation that here was somebody on a nightclub floor who would make jokes of, about J. Edgar Hoover. Now, J. Edgar Hoover is now uh, a laugh riot, uh, in, you know, dressed in a lady's dress. And, you know, but in those days... You could make fun of Eisenhower, but you couldn't make fun of J. Edgar Hoover. It was worth your life. He would, you know, that, that, the, the, the level of suppression of dissent in the 50s is hard to imagine for anyone who simply wasn't alive during that time. And that Saul would start doing this stuff on the floor of a nightclub. That Nichols and May, who came along just after me, uh, would actually tell what dating and feeling up a girl and being felt up and, and all of that, you know, with what sexual relations were on a nightclub floor and, and subsequently on television. I mean, it was astonishing mm -hmm. that, that these people were the first to come along who represented what people of my generation understood to be true and relevant to us in our time, as opposed to Bob Hope and Jack Benny, uh, who in varying degrees were very, very good, but had nothing really to connect to us. They connected to our parents' generation and, um, and some to our grandparents. But this new humor, which uh, took its sweet time to appear in the pages of 
literary magazines. I mean, New York was, was, was afraid of its shadow during that period, as well as almost all publications. And so it, it really started in the cabarets, um, in the Village Voice with my stuff and, and the work of other writers, uh, because that's where it had to go. And that, that's, it, it wasn't where the money was. It's where the need to identify yourself. And, and I mean, it's the way Off-Broadway off started when Broadway and, and even Off-Broadway was more or less dead. I mean, it's interesting about how uh, comics, underground comics, uh, none of this stuff, as Art says, has anything to do with money. There seems to be this need at a particular time for young people to explode with whatever gift they have. And so they invent, or as Art says, reinvent the form. You know, that, that uh, I'm astonished uh, that theater today, which is really uncommercial, has so many young people wanting to come in as playwrights. They're not going to make a dime. And these are people who aren't primarily interested at this point anyhow and using this as a way of getting out to Hollywood and writing that sitcom. I mean, they have something they need to say. And over and over again, I run into them. I mean, it's, qu it's quite exciting because it's, it's how the culture, under the worst conditions, reinvents itself. And I'm sure you know, after September 11th, it will find a way of doing that once again. When you came out of The Voice, uh, you couldn't, you literally would not have been invited to be writing for any other uh, I was literally disinvited. Right. <laughs> the only way. <laughs> I mean, I, I had been around and tried to get everywhere, and nobody would run anything I'd done. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and the voice would run it. They just wouldn't pay me. They didn't have the money. Uh -huh. And I, I thought it was a good deal I, because I could get in print. And I had confidence enough in the work to, mm -hmm. to think that eventually, or qui and rather quickly as it turned out, it would build an audience, and it would end up being a living. Historically, what moment were your voice pieces then syndicated? I mean, there was a moment in which they could exist only in The Voice, and then there was a moment in which they existed all over the country. First, they went to London and The Observer, uh, and uh, which in a sense was the most important syndication because the most important audience saw it, saw it there in terms of uh, creating the reputation for, for the work and for myself. Uh, and, um, and then there was a man named Bob Hall, who ran what was then called the Hall Syndicate, who came around a year or two before I agreed to go with them and try to syndicate me. But I always thought of syndicate as a downer, that these papers would try to sit on me and censor me. And uh, would stop. And Hall once threw me a sheet of paper, and he said, if you're so worried about your goddamn precious integrity, write your own contract. So <laughs> I did, and he signed it, and that's how I got syndicated. Mm -hmm. And was there any pressure, even in play? No, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> I was refusing to sell, sell out, and no one cared. How, how, about, how about the pressure to go into other media? Yeah. Um, art well, partly it was because the strip was so successful, I felt that, um, I don't know, you know what somebody said, you know, I, was, I was being understood too quickly. I felt that, I was no longer, that my radical credentials were under attack because... Everybody seemed to love me, and I knew I was badly misunderstood. <laughs> so I decided to go into the theater and write a play where it would be a longer form. Uh, I couldn't be misunderstood, and I'd be a rejected again, which was the appropriate form for me, I thought, at the time. <laughs> uh, so I wrote Little Murders, knowing that if I ever wrote a play I really liked, it would close on Broadway in five days. It did. I, <laughs> I had my credentials back, mm -hmm. and uh, and then the play came back two years later off Broadway and was a success. But at least I found a way of 
a new way and a more exciting way in some ways of confronting audiences in a longer form, which allowed me to uh, express myself so that I could be less misunderstood. I know early on that Art was invited to turn uh, early versions of Mouse into uh, a film, uh, the, the animated version, mm -hmm. but you stuck fiercely to... I have no interest in seeing it happen. Yeah. Well, but they wanted to, and then there were other versions. I mean, uh, we don't, to this day, we don't know what their, um, uh, uh, Spielberg's, uh, Oh, the Mouse's Tale? The Mouse's Tale has, uh, it seems that. to either well, be. Well, American Tale seemed like yeah. the, the most logical way it came into existence was, uh, a bad story conference after seeing a chapter of Mouse and Raw. That's my sense, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's actually what catalyzed, uh, the, the, uh, the, the vision book of the books. The reason that part one came out was I just wanted to get it out before American Tale could come out so that I wouldn't be seen as sort of like a more demented version of Spielberg or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the Spielberg cartoon, by the way, if you don't know, is uh, uh, Jews as mice, uh, Russians, uh, Cossacks uh, as cats. Uh, I mean, there was, there seems really to be a takeoff. Uh, and you were never approached by I've been approached people? by every... No, but I mean, before they did American Tale, did they come? Did no, because I think, you know, the story conferences, we can't do a comic, um, animated cartoon about Auschwitz, but, but Fiddler on the Roof shows a precedent. We could do it about the Russian tale. But you were never asked to come and write their Fiddler on the Roof? No, nobody did. <laughs> um, no, I don't think I have that cuddly touch. That <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, you know, that doesn't stop them. They think, they can, um, they, they think once you sign a contract... Well, what well, did happen was after yeah, Mouse take, came out, there's been like, uh, I, I got rid of one agent because he actually countervened my orders and brought uh, this caricature of a Hollywood producer to my studio, un, uninvited, uh, the, the chain, the whole business. <laughs> and uh, he's explaining to me um, how he's going to bring my work to a large, to a, uh, that I had a, a successful cult. He's going to make you important. I had a successful cult book because it had sold in the millions, but if I really wanted to reach an audience, I needed to have a movie made with him. And when I kept saying I had no desire to do this, he kept interpreting it as I want a larger advance. And, and so the conversation was really a hard one to have. Um, and then every once in a while, like, somebody gets through the filters and talks to me about it, even though it's, it's just something I'm... It's not like out of any uh, dislike for movies, even. Uh, I, lo I like movies a lot. It's just the conviction that this has nothing to do with the movies. Mm -hmm. It's based on a misunderstanding of the work to want to turn it into a film. Um, but one person who got through to me, now it would be more possible, but this was about, I guess, eight years ago or ten years ago, saying, but if you could do it any way you wanted to do it, how would you do it? I said, let's use real mice. And that stopped. <laughs> <laughs> stopped the conversation. <laughs> and so Stuart Little was born. <laughs> exactly. I obeyed that. Irving Little. <laughs> so what have you taken from there then to uh, New Yorker covers? I mean, that, that was also a, a leap and to, yeah. to, get, to have to say a lot now in one place. I mean, suspended a man, uh, animation and you still took a, a critique. I mean, you're, the covers of the, uh, uh, the Hasid, you know, kissing the Jamaican and the, uh, my favorite, the Easter Bunny with his uh, being bled dry on, you know, on the crucified. Uh -huh. Well, I mean, I will, I've always been interested in both writing and in drawing, and it was my deficiencies in one that would keep making me work toward the other. Um, and the thing that's the hardest, ultimately, is weaving them together. So like whenever anybody asks me to write or to draw, 
like a single image, it just seems like um, I've gotten away with murder. It's so easy in comparison to the comics. You know, that's something we should really talk about because the distinguishing difference, distinctive difference, I'm sorry, uh, that makes the comic form, whether comic books, newspaper strips, whatever, so singular, is its words and pictures. And I think that's what grabbed me from the time I was five years old or six years old to this very day. I mean, that, the, 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 the back and forth rhythm, the dance that goes on between the dialogue and what the character or characters are doing and how they move, how they talk, how they relate, and then the storytelling aspect of it. I mean, the two great innovators in terms of storytelling were Kniff in, in the newspapers and Terry and the Pirates and, of course, Will Eisner. You know, and, and each of them strongly influenced by movies and putting movies on paper and then in their own term influencing movies, uh, particularly Will. You know, uh, uh, and and um, where filmmakers study the spirit to try to replicate those weird angle shots and... and, and uh, which you know, he got out of movies in the first place, you know. <laughs> and and, and uh, but the telling of stories, and I, as a kid, would sit and study these things, and with it was dialogue. And suddenly there'd be six silent panels, and how exciting it was that nothing is going on in these panels, and yet they're telling the story. The story is so graphic, and then the dialogue picks up again. It was like movie music, stopping, starting, stopping, starting. I mean, the form and how it plays with words, how it plays with language, how it plays with sounds. Will was one of the great innovators of, along with Roy Crane who did Wash Tubs and Captain Easy with, with sounds in comics. I mean, long before the endless uh, superhero versions of thwack, clump, kudum, thwap, you know, all of, I mean, all of that vulgarization, it was done with great discretion so that you could actually hear these sounds on paper. And the, and, and the, the, the creation of this alternate reality in the strip form, which Eisner really did more than anybody else to ferment, um, with language, uh, which created character, was a remarkable invention, and I was staggered by it. And you know, that now that all of this work is so familiar to us over the years, it's hard to be to put yourself back in that time when you were staggered. But if it was if it was the early 40s or so, and you see this work for the first time, it, you have to pick yourself off the floor. You've never seen anything like it. It was quite remarkable. There's, a, there's one thing I'd like to add to that, aside from thanking you for all the nice things you said. <clears throat> the, um, there's a, I think there's a, seamless, there's a seamlessness between text and images, at least the way I do it and the way I see it. <coughs> I think the, the dialogue is so much a part of the action and the lettering, which I insist on doing myself to this day, <clears throat> is so visually connected with the art that they are, in my opinion, they form a, sing a whole rather than separate things. Currently, I'm going back to using text, that is printed text, as a connecting device <clears throat> uh, to, uh, to provide uh, distance uh, and, and uh, time and general atmosphere, to, uh, or history really, to something that the comics, we're, we're dealing in a medium here that's a very difficult thing to do. It's very, I spent an awful lot of time uh, uh, playing around with a figure, just redrawing and redrawing until I can a, a, um, articulate an internalization, what I call internalization. 
get a man standing there and having him display the fact that he is heartbroken is a very, very hard thing to do unless you play around and work on it until you get the figure just right. So what you have is a, a text that is sometimes necessary, sometimes very much a part of the art, and sometimes not a part of the art at all, or a part of the storytelling. So that I, I don't see it as a separate uh, device. I see it as, as very integrated. What there is, though, is in, com in comics, there are certain things that are much harder to do than others. So that um, when I was working on Mouse, I kept wanting to give up in the sense that, well, maybe I'll do this <laughs> section in prose and then go back to comics as a form for other sections. Because what comics do very well is exemplified by the title of the first successful comic book, Action Comics, you know, in the sense that horizontal movement. Guys here, lifts up a car, throws it at somebody. Uh, that's, comics can do that. They show you something. And that's why they can sometimes be confused with storyboards even. Although a lot of the language of uh, comics predates cinematic language so that the first person I would call a comic strip artist was this guy, Rudolf Topfer, a uh, Swiss educator uh, and amateur artist who made these books of uh, sequential drawings with texts underneath that he wrote. And he had cross-cutting, but this was in the 1830s. Very quick cross-cutting. Um, but the, what's harder for comics to, to accomplish is a kind of ambient, like vertical information. Like when I had to, in Mao's, try to describe what my father would get to eat in the in Auschwitz, not at a given meal, but in general. That's something that comics have a hard time finding, you know. So the first temptation is, well, just do it in prose and then go back to comics later. And finding a solution that would wrap it back into being um, told visually was what took a lot of um, tries and retries to find. You know, well, that, that's a very important point because you're dealing with static imagery here. This is a medium that is a language in itself. People ask me, what do I do now? And I tell them now I'm a writer. I write with pictures. I no longer refer to myself as a cartoonist or an artist because I think it, it's no longer a truth. We're writing with imagery. And when you write with imagery, you're trying to evoke things which a, a writer, words alone, has great luxury in doing. A writer can sit down and describe a man walking up a broken stairway uh, feeling very bad is, and thinking about all the terrible things that have happened to him until he gets to the top of the stairway. You have only, we have only one picture, one image in which we can show that. And uh, it's a, so it's a totally different kind of thing, a different task we have. It's a, it's a much more difficult task. And, and well, I, in my despairing I, moments, I feel like we're working with a language that has about 12 words in it. You know? very, and very, your heart is breaking. <laughs> you're trying to say something, but all you know is... Shoe, banana, go. <laughs> well, I spend most of my time. And, and, and if it gets to be 15 <laughs> words, you're going to really be sorry because it's the very limitation Absolutely. that it creates the fall. You know, that, that for me, uh, a breakthrough in what I was doing or understanding mm -hmm. what I needed to do in the early years of the strip, in 56 or 57, was reading the Grove edition of Waiting for Godot and discovering that Beckett was writing a comic strip without the pictures. I mean, that, that, uh, that every line of, of dialogue could have been written by E.C. Seagar and Popeye back in the 1930s. I mean, that, that, uh, it was extraordinarily simple, and yet for some strange, inexplicable reason, it resonated like crazy. 
and trying to figure out how you took this little and made it explode was my form of study for, for a long time to come. How do you, you know, how to replicate that on a comic page? How do you do that? And it's uh, uh, rather well than, than the, the, we are writers, we're more dramatists. I mean, that this is, uh, um, and you of all people were doing that before anybody, that, that, that uh, or art in mouse, um, not just showing people eating, but when nothing is happening, when you and Francois are having an argument about your father in a car, and it's just a conversation, and yet it's so much more... It's the rhythms. That's uh, what you were talking yeah. about with those six quiet boxes. When I lecture on comics, one of the first slides I show is a strip that you may not even remember doing that you did for Playboy, which is a, a, it's about Bernard and... Um, Marsha, I don't remember the name. Marsha the Enormous Monster? Uh, well, what it is, is it was all black panels. Yeah. Oh, yes. And uh, it's just God, 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 God. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. And uh, um, that's a sex act, folks. It, right. And what it was is the, the boxes, right, it wasn't a theological conversation per se. But, uh, but it was all done in boxes that were totally black with Jules's characteristic lettering and a little line going toward one side of the box or the other. Um, and occasional panels that were just black with no dialogue. And where the uh, strip lives is in those rhythms of the, of the black panels that indicate a long pause because there's three or four of them before the characters start talking again. And I like this because yeah, it, it was, was Beckett-like in its minimalism. It, it, you know, it's, it's, no, it's, no, it's more it, than that. It was yeah. much more than that. It, uh, it, what that. The genius of that was the fact that it brought the reader in, each of the readers who were reading the thing, saw what was going on in that dark room. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and the characters know, were just the one line going was, toward one side or the it other. It was radio. I grew up not just with comments, <laughs> but with radio. And that's what radio did. You know, hey, that, there could be a ventriloquist on gonna, the radio. Are we going to let him tell it what it is? Or tell <laughs> <you>? <laughs> we'll tell you what it is. But the, uh, the, the, the end of that strip, was the, the strip is a, um, a long orgasm in panels. Oh, 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 oh my God, I mean, you know, screams and screams, and then there's nothing, and then, uh, and then you hear him saying, I mean, it's like radio. Maja, yes, Bernard, I think I love you. And then, and then a blank panel, she says, Bernard, why did you have to spoil it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you but it's, it's the mix and match of the, the text, the pictures, and as I say, every experience that comes into it. Uh, Samuel Beckett, Pop, I mean, Beckett used Pop, he used Vaudeville, uh, uh, all through his work. Uh, the, these, um, the great French, the great and sometimes pretentious French director, Alain Rene, would talk about how he loved Jack Benny and Groucho Marx and, and, uh, and Mandrake the Magician, how he always wanted to make a movie about Mandrake the Magician. There's one box in mouse that has that silent box that I know, and it comes just after Beckett reference, right. which you're referring yeah. to you and your therapist, not you. Right, so and, it, and that the silent box is what allows that sequence to work. Yeah. Um, but it is using these very spare means to make something happen. And what people have been asking me about this New Yorker cover uh, that I did about a month ago um, on, on the towers, and in a way I was channeling... Um, uh, the black-on-black -black paintings, but it also had something to do with that Jules uh, black uh, strip. And I, I think of the uh, the cover as having something, it's been described as like um, 
great achievement in graphic design, but in a way I think of it as the most minimalist possible comic I could ever do. You know, there was a two-panel strip that involved uh, words and pictures. That uh, this cover, if you haven't seen it, was something that looks like a black image with the New Yorker logo on top and a little rupture in the W of the logo. And when you look at it in a different light or at another time in different conditions, you see a vague silhouette of the trade towers. Um, and in that sense, and then it flickers back into being blackness. So it's sort of like this two-panel comic strip, you know, like since uh, it's black and then it's something other than black by print, being printed black on black. And by having those two possible modes of being looked at, it's dealing with time, which is, in a very abstracted way, what comics have to do with these uh, little boxes strung together. And this thing would not have worked if it was a graphic without that logo, without the words The New Yorker on it. If it didn't have that bit of language broken, then it would just be some kind of painting. You know, It had to do with uh, its existence as a printed object, its existence with the words New York broken and with that image that comes in and goes out of existence. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm thinking, do we want to do questions? Uh, we have time for questions from the audience, and I've uh, made it that way. Yes? I have a question. Uh, her block, as we all know, the dog, Political cartoons in general, or her block in specific, specifically? Political cartoons in general, or her block specifically? Or anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, when her block entered the world of the newspaper uh, cartoon, the political cartoon, it was a fairly moribund period. Uh, and, and when he came of age he, during the post-war years leading into the Cold War years. He was almost alone um, as a strong liberal, often dissenting voice, most often dissenting voice, um, in the newspapers and also injecting humor into his images. Um, and his images were memorable ones. I mean, when we think of Early Richard Nixon, we think of Herblock cartoons, Nixon crawling out of the sewer, something that, uh, that troubled Nixon to his dying day, which took much too long a time. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm not convinced it actually took place. But <laughs> that may be one reason I retired from political cartoons. Without Nixon and without Reagan, how, how could I go on? Uh, and without Bill Clinton, God help us. Uh, but the cartoonists I most adored go back to the turn of the century, the early years of the 20th century, the cartoonists, the radical cartoonists from Masses uh, and Liberation Magazine, um, the Liberator Magazine, rather. Uh, Art Young, who was a master, uh, Robert Miner, who invented using a grease crayon to do these political drawings, you know, a form that became very popular with liberal cartoonists, other cartoonists. And Minor was Kirby. the best of the, of the group and gave it all up some 20 years later to become a Communist Party hack and write these impossible tracks. Uh, uh, he became a parody of himself when he had started out as a brilliant artist. And Boardman Robinson and some of these other trash can school uh, artists 
uh, also doubled as political cartoonists, and they were wonderful. And later on, uh, I mean, outside of her block and the emerging uh, uh, Paul Conrad, first in Denver and then in the Los Angeles Times, there wasn't much dissent around until the Vietnam years, uh, where a whole bunch of young men going to college and a few women um, exploded in their rage against the war and then popped out on the editorial pages and somehow found positions. not alone Gary Trudeau in Doonesbury, but Tony Auth in the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, Doug Marlette in the Charlotte Observer, uh, uh, Tom Tolles, and I mean, just a whole bunch of them, really brilliant talents. Uh, and the most brilliant of all of them, still around, still doing brilliant stuff, is Pat Oliphant. Uh, and I hear where the Washington Post has decided not to replace her block or have any political cartoonists. Mm-hmm. So now we have the two major newspapers in the United States, yeah, the New York cartoons. Times and the, and the Washington Post. Uh, not running cartoons, uh, which is very sad. Uh, the form isn't what it used to be, but it will be back again, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Yeah. You mean, I'm sorry, is, is it, you mean, are they cartoons or are they something else? Yeah. Um, Steinberg, I think, came to resent being called a cartoonist as he, as he wanted to be taken more seriously, I guess, by his colleagues out in the Springs in New York, but in, in the Hamptons. But... Uh, but he was as fine a cartoonist as an artist and an artist as a cartoonist as one could possibly find, um, despite his sensitivity on the issue. Uh, I think it's um, another case of what I was trying to say before about um, Will and Jules, which is that every cartoonist worth his salt has to reinvent what cartoons are and has to find their own balance between words and image and a way to, like, utilize those tools to their own ends. And I don't think it was so much social striving for him as just trying to find uh, a way to articulate what he wanted to do. And that had to do with like thinking of these lines as signs. Um, and as a result, he's one of the great cartoonists. But uh, it's an argument that I hope will recede in time, whether uh, this one that somehow cartoonist means being down at the uh, garment industry end of the uh, spectrum of, of activity. You wrote an homage to uh, Chuck Schultz last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it was warm and fuzzy with an edge. <laughs> I mean, there was oh. something funny going on there. Could you elaborate, actually, on your relationship to, to Peanuts over the years, which seemed a little bit uh, um, bristly? Peanuts, okay. Um, well, I distilled what was going to be a long essay into a three-page comic strip, finally, mm-hmm. that ran in The New Yorker. Um, and it didn't come out about so much because of his death, but what happened was I'd gotten a fan letter from him. And I wanted to meet, and it said, once I decided to take it seriously, there's a letter that came from one Snoopy place. So I, <laughs> I, I really didn't believe that it was a true letter from, from him. Uh, and when I'd grown up, I guess I was influenced by 
Schultz, but it would be like being influenced by Rice Krispies, as I said in the, uh, in, in the piece, because I didn't even think about it as an influence. It was just ambient. Uh, and when I came of age as a cartoonist, we were rediscovering cross-hatching. We were rediscovering an earlier age that included Hogarth and, um, and, and a certain kind of drawn cartoon that was the opposite of what uh, Schultz was striving for, which was this very less is more minimalist kind of cartoon. So a lot of what I was doing when I was finding my way as a cartoonist was sort of in reaction against that. And somehow I also connected Schultz to Republican girls, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, they'd have like the Peanuts comic strip up on the dorm wall and then the, te the stuffed teddy bears. Uh, and um, as a result, it wasn't the cartoonist that was very high up on my uh, conscious radar screen. But getting the letter made me rethink it primarily because I was seeing a new generation of cartoons that's come after me in a way uh, that was influenced by Peanuts because Peanuts uh, certainly spoke to Chris Ware, who I think of as the most important cartoonist of his generation, as something finding him in uh, the heartland of uh, East Texas uh, that spoke to the idea of being alienated, that he could relate to Charlie Brown in a way that he couldn't find that much in the mass culture to relate to, and took, um, started to cherish its minimalism. So that was already making me rethink it when I got this letter. So I figured, invited me to come out and meet him. I couldn't resist. I went out and found myself really won over by him as a man, which I didn't expect to have happen because as well as somebody whose politics I probably wouldn't necessarily get on with and... Uh, a certain kind of interest in religion that I have an antipathy toward. Uh, what I found when I met him was somebody who was so dedicated to what he was doing. Uh, most cartoons who would have achieved his station would have 20 assistants and never visit the drawing table again. He had no assistants to speak of, and even though he had a Parkinson's-like disease, a tremor in his hand, he did it all every day, one strip per day, by himself, steadying one hand with the other to make his comic and letting his line change and get more uh, nervous as his control slipped. And that discipline and that... He'd do, he'd do the drawings large. He did them large. And if you do so, that you didn't see... But the, also his lettering was, yeah. you know, was, what an, I mean, for him not to have gone to like typeset or computer lettering or an assistant was just uh, a sign of how urgent this project was for him. It had nothing to do with the Hallmark card and MetLife industry that had grown up around him. I remember and, asking um, him... Just to, to add to what you're saying, I remember asking him about whether he, his illness would, you know, he would quit. And he said, no, he would never quit. Never quit and he'd never let anybody else do the strip. It was his world put on paper. And I guess what I've always uh, admired in comics and then got to admire in his strip as well was the, uh, the authenticity of an individual's voice coming out through a mass medium. Um, it's, why, it's harder to find in movies. They had to invent the auteur theory. But when you get to uh, comics, it exists, or for a long part of its history, existed to peddle newspapers. But what you were really getting was L.Z. Seagar. What you were really, you know, you were getting a real personality coming through and expressing themselves. And what I saw with Schultz was that he had basically found this game that intrigued him for a lifetime, which was to take his personality, divide it up into facets, and then put one facet of his personality up against the other. And um, the strip ran, the piece I did ran right uh, a week before he died, and I actually talked to him the day he died. He called me um, to tell me that this was his favorite thing of the things that had come out recently. But what I'd liked in that strip specifically was uh, validated by an anecdote 
the day after he died by somebody who knew him far better than me, uh, Mark Walker, who says that uh, was re- relating this anecdote that Schultz and he were at a cart- National Cartoon Society meeting. Um, Mark Walker, the guy who does Beetle Belly, made a suggestion and says that uh, Schultz very uncharacteristically said, Mort, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. Um, and then Walker was shaken uh, because Schultz is usually so mild-mannered. And then in the evening at this cocktail party, Schultz comes over sheepishly and apologizes, saying, I'm sorry, that was Lucy talking. <laughs> that's wonderful. Bravo. Well, from your lips to God's ear. <laughs> well, actually, uh, as I recounted earlier, the, I, I came back to the studio deciding that a revolution was going on. I was going to pick up where I had left off years before. And so I, be, I attempted to do a story that I believe would never be done in this medium. And, and that was really what the the practical precipitation of this thing. But it was a story that I wanted to talk about. It was the first time that I was free to write about the things that <clears throat> that uh, I had thought about, which is man's relationship with God. I always believed, as a matter of fact, I just did an interview with a, a Christian family newspaper in uh, uh, Italy, um, they asked me one of the questions they asked me is what do I think about what I, how do I feel about religion and I said that I felt that I would like very much to be a supreme being I hoped there was <laughs> however and I know that we have a contract with one they tell me but I'm, in, I'm concerned about the thing because neither party has lived up to its contract <laughs> and that was really what the basic underlying theme was and of course it was an attempt really to uh, to break out, as Art just put it, I was trying to reinvent uh, a, a medium that I felt has always been under understated, undermined. Uh, we were at the bottom of the artistic totem pole, so to speak, as a medium, and it's always bothered me, even to this day. We're now slowly but surely emerging, as I said the other day, that to somebody here that I feel like. Uh, I feel a little bit like uh, Martin Luther King, that at long last, thank God Almighty, they're recognizing us. We're, we're here. We're allowed to sit at the table. As a matter of fact, my visit here today was the first time I'm being at Princeton to be part of a, uh, a convocation of this kind. It's a little bit like being allowed to sit with the adults on top of the hill. <laughs> I want to thank you for inviting me. Froma, wait, Froma, sorry. And then I'll come over. Um, but that 
be innovated, certain technologies about doing it full size. Uh, and what comes up on the CD that they're working transcripts, the voice and the quality. So in other words, coming into the media in a very different way than simply, you know, in terms of a book form or in you know, a readable form. So I want you to know, so if you go something about that. And secondly, I guess I want to know, I'm sure that there's been lots written about, um, uh, you know, certainly uh, about the other two gentlemen. But I just running on the websites, uh, there's all these websites for you, with a bibliography. I mean, as if you were now, of course, this subject of study. There's a big midrash on mouse now, yeah. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you would give us a commentary on the midrash. <laughs> right, an outer circle of commentary. Um, well, let's see. The CD-ROM group, out of uh, my misunderstanding of what the medium could do, because I saw an ad that said, every picture in the Louvre on one disc. And so I thought that I had these boxes of uh, paper that I didn't know what to do with. And if I could put them in one retrievable archive, I'd be... Uh, justified in having saved all those pieces of paper, which I just did as a kind of Vladek Spiegelman-like trope, because maybe I could draw on the back or something. But I just was saving all of these scraps. And I, I liked the idea that they would be uh, visible, because, um, well, when I did mouse, the only way I could do it was to do each page and each box over and over again, kind of almost uh, repetitive stress-compulsive disorder or whatever. Um, as if I had to like invent an alphabet and get each letter down so it looked like a thing unto itself. Uh, and that involved a lot of uh, saying forth, trying to make something happen. And uh, so I was saving those um, stages in finding the right image for any given box of mouse. And I was able to have those go up in an art exhibit at some point at the Museum of Modern Art and wanted some other way of archiving and holding on to that stuff. And I also really wanted a way to, for people to hear Vladek's voice directly. So that, because Mao's is essentially one side of a telephone conversation where you get to hear me go, aha, uh aha, -huh, uh -huh, covering up the receiver while somebody's talking and making at least available that original uh, source of the story seemed important. And when I did the CD-ROM, I assumed that all of the tapes would be able to fit on it and all of these sketches. It's only about 15%, you know? Um, and that involved inventing new compression technology at the time in order to do it. But it was a way of um, trying to not... You know, the kind of magic I really like is the one where you get somebody explaining the trick and still making you uh, do a quick exhale of wonder that the trick is still working anyhow. And part of uh, what I had to do in Mouse and the Drawing was not pretend I drew better than I do, which is, I have severe limitations as a, a graphic artist. And um, that led to this thing that you were just referring to, which was making these drawings the same size that they're printed, as opposed to what Schultz was doing, of working really large and then minimizing the tremors and the errors and the frailties by reducing it a lot. And I figured I would be working in a one-to-one -one ratio with the reader and letting someone see the various false trails and uh, stages and dialogues back and forth with my father and the picture sources that led into it would allow more to be visible. So I wanted to let that happen. In the Midrash? The Midrash about them? Well, I mean... <laughs> You know, I, I haven't read a lot of these things. They've been sent to me, and I'm, I understand that now some, some of these academic things are being put together in a book. Um, 
usually I don't understand the jargon. Um, and I think that it's why I'm allowed to be an artist now. Uh, see, that, that one of the problems used to be that I was so, uh, art, I would articulate so much about comics and about the medium I was working in that uh, I would be looked at askance because artists aren't supposed to be able to talk about what it is that they do. Uh, but now that a language has been found to talk about what I do that I don't understand, I can be relegated back into being a dim-witted artist, so I'm grateful. Yeah, please. Um, no, right, right here, I'm sorry, in front. Yeah. No, no, closure I got when he died. Um, the, um, I don't know, all of this talk about uh, closure, catharsis, um, all of that stuff has nothing to do with either the project, with me, with my understanding of it. It's, uh, it, you know, I've tried psychotherapy and I've tried cartooning, and, and cartooning is cheaper. Um, Have you tried drink? Uh, more expensive. Ink is cheaper than liquor. Uh, but that ultimately these things don't have to, it's the opposite process that uh, um, psychology just is this kind of gushing forth of the stuff that's in you in order to find the wounds. This is a kind of uh, compression of information, of like uh, uh, packing things and putting them together. So I never thought of it in terms of um, a healing process in any way whatsoever. Um, and what I, what I did find was things changed. It's just that years went by. And so pers my perspective changed. It's hard now for me to separate out what would have changed had I not been making mouse. I mean, it's all part and parcel of the, the same trajectory now. So I can't sort things out. Certainly my father's death made us get along a lot better. Well, you know, something else happens um, in these forms when you're dealing with the people close to you, in particular your parents. This is a subject I know a lot about. Uh, because um, the arguments you lose in life, you don't necessarily win on paper, but you can certainly nullify. Uh, so that I found in several plays, and before that a number of cartoons, dealing with my mother, um, that the things that would put me into rage in real life, when, for example, in my play Grown Ups, or before that Little Murders, I saw this woman on stage speaking my mother's lines, I found that I was terribly fond of her, you know, that I, because I had gotten control of the situation by putting her words in her mouth in my play. So I had become, ha-ha, her author. And, and, uh, and when people... You know, audiences would come to me during intermission or afterward and say, that awful woman, I'd be hurt. I'd be insulted. <laughs> I'd think, what do they mean? I thought she was perfectly charming because I was talking about, my, I was thinking of my creation and not the real woman. Well, actually, you know, maybe I'm being too glib because the idea of gestalting probably does have something to do with all of this. Um, what Will was saying about having to act out to find how you draw somebody heartbroken, um, um, that... In the process of drawing Mao's, it became necessary to act out my father's gestures to find ways of compressing his language um, and trying to express what it is that he had to say. There is this uh, thing of disembodying from the situation where there's an art character, there's a Vladek character, and then there's the trying to like um, reconstruct what it is that had gone 
down in, in real life in a, um, another arena. So, so that's actually at least an overlap with some form of um, psychotherapy. Well, I think perhaps. a lot that helped you was to be able to convert these characters into anthropomorphic characters. You used animals. Had yes. somebody with a realist, let's say I, had I done Miles, had you come to me and say, do the story, it would have been a disaster. It would have been a total failure. It was. It was. Well, it required a degree the, of abstraction. In order or if you had done it, it as Odetzian or, or Chayefsky, like, or even Arthur Miller play, it wouldn't have worked. You know mm -hmm. that That's that right. it needed this <clears throat> abstraction mm -hmm. to become more real. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. Because the, you you involve the audience, which is really what the what mm -hmm. this is all us, what this medium is all about. This is the thing. Mm -hmm. I, I can't and actually, when we're talking about the midrash <clears throat> around Miles, I should say that I did understand Jim's essay and liked it very much since he's up here. Um, that um, insofar as this has to do with reconstructing events that I wasn't witnessing, that was the essential narrative. And, I, and uh, to have that located in his essays on memory was very useful for me. I was just going to say, my, uh, I don't get the kind of uh, reaction he gets to what he's, but occasionally I do. My only reaction right away is, really? <laughs> I, don't, uh, I, I think that uh, it's too much to ask of an author to ask him to react to a reaction, which is not fair. So get off his back. <laughs> <laughs> Please, I'm here. There are several Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonists who are women um, in Philadelphia. Oh, God, what's her name? <laughs> Signa Wilkinson. Signa Wilkinson, a good friend of mine. But I'm old. I can't remember good friends well, of mine. Well, there's now like um, a woman named Trina. Uh, she's never mentioned a Well, there's good reasons. Um, but I was You didn't say mention also, her either. There, there's. Um, there's a couple of books out now by a woman named Trina Robbins Trina who's specifically Robbins, right. been trying to like unearth the secret history of women in comics. Um, it's never been a field that attracted large numbers of women to it. I mean, the early part of the century, well, same reason that there were only relatively few women journalists in the first part of the century. It, was, it just uh, wasn't that kind of a playing field. There weren't that many women out in that strata of the labor force. There was a, a, a club that uh, was more male. Um, so the early days of the comic strips, which were a bunch of cigar-smoking, poker-playing newspaper guys, there were relatively few Hildy Johnsons, in, as in um, His Girl Friday or something. Um, and in comic books, the same thing. It was primarily a male field. So there were a few women who managed to move through it. And it's only with the generation that came about with um, 
the underground comics I was referring to before, the women in any even large minority began to be players in that world. And so it's in this generation... But now there are quite a few of them. ...where you can find yeah. a number of important women cartoonists, so that uh, I'd say Linda Barry is one of the best cartoonists working today in... in I don't think so. Lynn Johnson is, in my opinion, and one of the Carol best. Lay. Carol Lay is doing great things. There's, there's quite a few cartoonists now. Well, there'll be more. Well, no, because there's hardly a field anymore. Um, I think, insofar as there is a field, there'll be more women that are part of that cluster of people doing it. It's just that uh, it's such a strange area to work now. There's very little. Uh, Nobody's, there's no demand for comics artists the way there was in the uh, first days of the comic books or in the early part of the century where comic strips were growing up. At this point, it's more a calling than a career. Within that uh, frame of reference, now it seems that there would be more women doing it because why not? It's a, the field fractionates continually. It's like clouds in the sky. You have comic books now that are divided into various areas. You have the superheroes, and you have uh, uh, graphic novels. You have they're constantly moving around, so women have an opportunity. Comic books essentially were written for teenage boys who were concerned about their sex, you know, manhood. Uh, so, and they were written for pure adventure. Women, were, girls were not interested. Yes, in the daily strips, there was Nell Brinkley, who did beautiful stuff. Women were very interested in that. There were a lot of women cartoonists who can contribute into that area, but that was a totally different marketplace. It was a different audience. It was a broad audience. Actually, one, one thing that was really interesting to me, it was when you learned to draw cartooning, you'd have these books on how to draw cartoons. And... There were little recipes, almost like uh, thesauruses or dictionaries, visual dictionaries of how to draw the tough guy, how to draw the stupid person, the um, henpecked husband. But for the girls, was always a separate chapter from the various types, and you only had to know how to draw about three. You had to know how to draw the washerwoman, the uh, the sexy babe, and uh, the virginal uh, housewife, and that was pretty much it. You know, and what was interesting to me now is watching as women do become cartoonists, having to reinvent how to even draw themselves and enter that into comics language. There was a question up here. Yes. Oh, there's about so twenty some odd. In fact. Um, it just became, uh, it came out in Polish this past year. After 10 years yeah, of uh, death threats to the French publisher. French version here, but it's in 20 languages as far as I know. About, yeah, yeah I lost yeah. track. But it does very well in Korea. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Well, let's see. I mean, the other obvious suspect who has to be mentioned is Dan Close, I guess, who's also had some crossover interest in his work because of the movie Ghost World. Um, 
I don't know, I'm still interested in a bunch of cartoons that I was publishing in Raw who are doing uh, very interesting work still, like Gary Panter, who hasn't had uh, his new work published, but over the last few years has been doing this very intense, long project. And Kim Deitch, who's uh, also a member of the same generation that, of underground cartoonists, uh, who will be having a book coming out from the same publisher that did uh, Jimmy Corrigan. Um, there's a cartoonist in, in France named Louis Trondheim, whose work I like a lot. Um, but the problem with, is just mentioning these names, if it's not work you already know, just becomes kind of vapor. You know, it's hard to, to grab hold of it. Um, what I do find is that as cartooning becomes a smaller and smaller arena, because there's less cartoonists now than there were 30 years ago and 50 years ago, in a sense, uh, that the quality of the work is so much... Uh, there's a much higher level before things can get to be called mediocre. And so there's a, um, there's a lot of mediocre work now, which is better than most of what came in the history of comics. You know? And uh, as to which artist will really break out and do something that like, uh, is so un, um, extraordinary that it'll just demand and find its venue and its attention, it's hard to know. I mean, up until last year, one could hardly describe Chris Ware as a breakout anything. Well, I have a problem finding because I live in a past. I grew up with a in a world. It's a nice place to visit, Bill. I wish I could yeah, go. Very comfortable back then. I don't have any problems with any changes. It's all been happen, happened before. Uh, no, uh, I grew up with an understanding that there were two worlds in the world of art. There was the very sophisticated statement made in a, with very primitive art, and there was very sophisticated art with very primitive statements. And I think that this still remains kind of a world for me. I find it very hard to separate myself from the skill of telling, the skill of artwork, with what is being said. I still have to kind of grit my teeth and, and look at some of this new stuff that comes through, or look through Raw magazine and look through some of the stuff and say, I've got to get used to this. This artwork stinks. <laughs> but um, maybe he has something to say. I better give this another look. So it's a very hard thing for me to select. Uh, I, I regard a, a field filled with young people who have something to say or making a contribution. It's very hard to pick out uh, the, uh, the winners of, to, of tomorrow. Jules, any likes or dislikes out there? I'm sorry, any what? Any, any uh, artists that you can think of come to mind? Oh, today? Yeah. Well, I mean, Chris, you know, Chris Ware that Art mentioned, uh, our friend Ben Catcher. Um, there are others who, uh, when I get Comics Journal every month, I skim the pages, and there's almost always somebody, at least graphically of interest, and then I won't be very interested in the storyline or you know, and, and give up on it. But there's a lot of talent out there, and. Um, uh, in all sorts of forms. Um, I would suggest for anybody who wants to know as much about comics as you need to know and, and much about its past, uh, to read the work of a writer who wasn't around for any of this and wasn't born until 1963 and couldn't possibly know what he's writing about and does it brilliantly. And that's uh, Michael Chabon and the Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which, where he um, it's pitch perfect in every possible way 
and how he comes to be that way is a mystery to me. But that's, that's rather uh, thrilling in terms of all levels, in terms of the respect he pays to a, uh, a craft that I, uh, that I grew up adoring and still adore, um, and, uh, and the respect it pays to the novel, which is another form that I've always adored and uh, which has been uh, lacking in brilliant undertakings in recent years. Uh, I mean, it's just a remarkable piece of work. You're supposed to be on your panel. Beg your pardon? You're supposed to be on Yes, yes I know. Mm-hmm. You couldn't make it. Well, with that, um, I want to thank you all for coming. And so invite you to stay for Roundup Remarks uh, by Michael Wood and Daniel Mendelson. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.